welcome back to the Out of Edge podcast. I am your loving and passionate podcast host, Dr. Stacey Gonzalez. This is the premier podcast where we talk all things education. Everybody's got something to say about education these days, so we're happy that you're here with us to join us today. I have my favorite specialist, most amazing co-host with me today, Morgan Joseph. Hey, how are you, Stacey? I'm so glad you're here today, and we were talking about, what do you call this that you have on your head today? Oh yeah, I, I put a head wrap on. No one's gonna see this, so. But just know, I wrapped my head in a scarf today, which is a little different. Different looks, different angles. I like wow. the head wrap scarf thanks. look. Thanks, yeah, thanks. it's looking pretty nice. I told you, I would get my head wrapped in a scarf as well. If, yeah, you know, I, I mean, use cases are different per person. You know, sometimes when you look in the mirror, you're like, you know what, this isn't the day. <laughs> just put on a beautiful wrap. It looks good. You have some good earrings. Done. Yeah, the earrings make it right. Mm-hmm. Well, today I am super excited about our guest that we are going to talk to today. Her name is Darlene Axel. She's been an educator for a really long time and she has got some real deep knowledge to share with us today. So, with that, Darlene, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So glad that you're here today. So, Darlene, out the gate, we always ask tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, um, I'm a teacher at heart. I mean, I will be very honest with you that I will be 79 on my next birthday. And and I can't give it up. I just can't. Um, I started, um, I graduated from Northern Illinois, which is how I kind of connected with with Stacy and a long time ago. Um, with a major in secondary education and ended up teaching fifth grade and t- looking at the prince at the superintendent and saying, I, I can't teach fifth grade. I don't only know how to do high school kids. And he said, oh, yes, you can. And so I did that for about three years. Um, and then I was the reading teacher in um, uh, middle level language arts teacher and then finished my master's at Northern in, um, in counseling and spent most of my career as a high school counselor and middle-level counselor, director of counseling. Um, I, When I first got into um, being director and having to do evaluations of, of educators, um, that's really when I got interested in what does it really mean to be an effective teacher? Um, because I'm looking at the work of, of teachers, of counselors when they're in the classroom teaching and working, looking at their small group work and I'm going, I don't have a basis. We don't have a knowledge base around which to talk about this. And so my, um, so we got very involved in some work of Dr. John Safir. Um, and then um, I ended up working for the Department of Defense Schools for a couple of years in England and doing staff development with their folks and came back to my job in Appleton, Wisconsin and said, I hate working in central office. I I can't stand not working with kids. And so I became a middle-level principal. And that's kind of where I ended my teaching career in public schools was as a middle-level school principal. And um, I have to say, I had to go over to a high school the other day and I came home and I said to my husband, and this sounds crazy. And it probably after 
If I was really doing it, it wouldn't be the case. But I said, if someone had walked into out in the parking lot and said, come on in, we need you today. I would have been there and I heard. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. That's you know, right. Teacher at heart. And feeling energy of high school kids is just, is just amazing. Um, but then I got involved with Charlotte Danielson. I read her book, the, uh, the framework for teaching, um, and said, this, this is really it, you know, in terms of really helping teachers get better and grow their practice. I really enjoyed that work for, for many, many years and, and did a lot of traveling and work with that. Uh, and I've pretty much stopped that traveling business. Well, first of all, with COVID, we can't. Yeah, sure. So it was kind of an easy decision to say, I'm probably not going to do much more stand-up training, um, except with the client I had this morning. And um, the client I had this morning was from Turks and Caicos. And if they say, come on over, I will be there. Yeah. Wait. Okay. Wait. I I have a question, Morgan. Do you need two extras to come with you to Turks and Caicos? We can help. Yeah. We have skills. I think my granddaughter's already gotten on that boat. (laughs) Next time. Next time. It is a beautiful place. And they're just, this morning, it was just delightful to hear one of the participants. I was doing a course on, on uh, establishing a culture for learning. And one of the participants, um, we're talking about setting high expectations for students. And uh, he said, I'm going to play, I, I, there's a song that, that spoke to me as a student and a student. And I said, oh, really? I said, can you sing it? And he goes, you bet. And this beautiful voice comes out of the out of the computer with him, it, he must have kept a guitar in his office because he was playing the guitar and singing. And um, the words were just amazing about school and learning and um, mm. how it inspired him. So mm. that's kind of where I've been. And um, I have two sons that are educators as well. One is actually very near you, Stacy, and Park Forest Lake. Okay. Yeah. Forest Park. Forest Park. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Not far from me at all. Well, and that's, that's the thing about, um, I love, first of all, I love that you identify yourself as a teacher still 79 Mm -hmm. years young for sure. And that is a testament to the heart of, of a teacher and an educator is that you are continually learning. I think this is a profession where people underestimate the impact um, Mm -hmm. that they, that they have, especially now where teachers have been um, really put on um, in, in some ways, right. Put out to dry and the way that we, we view our teachers pre the pandemic, it wasn't necessarily great. Now, during the pandemic, I think teachers have taken some pretty big hits. Um, but on the flip side of that, the, uh, the amount of work and heart that it takes to, to persist in this for 79 years, kudos, kudos to you for sure. Um, I know before we were talking, before we, before we started the show, you were sharing a little bit about um, a teacher and a moment, um, a high school principal for you that, that made a, a significant difference. And so we wanted to provide space for you to share that and the, and what you wrote um, on this, on this platform. Um, 
Well, I'm going, the, it was a little article in this book that some folks wrote because um, around North, Northwestern Illinois and, you know, community stories. And I had, I did write a letter to my high school principal. Um, I actually did my student teaching at the same high school where I graduated. And um, this is a letter that I wrote to him. Um, I said, um, uh, Ruben Baumgartner was his name and he's passed away of course since, since this. But I wrote, um, some letters are a long time in the thinking stage and finally get written. Consider this one of those letters. Um, I was a young woman with one year of college to finish. Having graduated from Freeport High School in 1960, <laughs> I was then scheduled to do my student teaching there in the fall. Um, however, I became pregnant and things being as they were in the 1960s, I just assumed I would not be able to continue my schooling. I came to you and told you I would not be doing my student teaching and that I planned to drop out of college and not finish my senior year. While I'm sure these were not your exact words, you said something like, we have nothing against motherhood at this school. Um, if you drop out now, you will never return to finish. We will still be glad to have you come to student teach at Freeport High School. I can't tell you how this vote of confidence and encouragement affected my life. I did do my student teaching at Freeport. I did graduate from Northern Illinois University and went on to receive my master's in guidance and counseling. Mr. Baumgartner, I was not captain of the cheerleaders or on the academic team. I was a very average student, but you took the time to encourage me and say, you can do it. Words can never express my, my gratitude. And then I concluded with, oh yes, and what happened to that little baby that was born in the spring of 1964? Well, he's a high school teacher working and trying hard to make a difference in the lives of students. I shall be forever grateful. And I just think, and I do choke up. I told you I was going to do that. But when I think of the difference that man made in my life and how, how, um, what a purposeful profession teaching is. I mean, it's like you get up in the morning and you know, you've got a purpose, you know, that you've got a direction and this is something that you can do. And, um, it's hard for me to ever think of not being doing some kind of teaching in my life because I think teachers make such a tremendous difference. Um, I can't imagine what my life would have been if I had followed the plan that I was going to follow, which was hang it up, you know, get married, have this baby, and I'll probably have three or four more and be done with it and never get my degree. But he made a difference. And um, as we all can in education. So that's why I think it is such an empowering profession and one that takes again, then so much responsibility because, you know, we hold in our hands the lives of our students and um, we can really make a difference. So that's my story. And I- That's beautiful. That's, that, that's a, a beautiful story and a reminder to us about what matters right? Mm -hmm. And it's the moments, 
you didn't talk about the curriculum, you didn't talk about the, um, you know, the learning class. It's when he noticed you in your humanity and gave you the permission to show up as you, especially in a time period where it makes so much sense what you, what you're sharing, right. In a time period where that was that you, you are going to be a mother and, and that's it for you. And I will also share with you. Um, I applied for a job. My first application for my job, um, I got a letter back that said, you're very qualified. We'd be happy to have you in the future, but we think you should be staying home with your child. And my child would have been six months old when I started back to work. And so I did stay home with him for a year and, and then went back to, to teaching, but how times have changed and, and for the good, you know, we, sometimes we, we do that old thing about, you know, Remember when times were so wonderful? I mean, I'm thinking it seriously, seriously, do you want to go back to that where women don't have the opportunities to work, where um, where we can't take a cell phone and feel like we're more safe because we have something that we can call people on? I mean, really, I don't care to go back to that. I think, you know, going forward is where I want to go. And as you're thinking about going forward, what you really bring to the table is this power of relationships and how it's a reminder that education and learning is relational. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear what you think we could be doing differently, because I think we've kind of shifted away from that. And if anything, COVID showed us how important those relationships actually were to the learning. And now that we're going back, how might we think differently about this learning environment we're trying to create for not yeah. just students, but also for our staff. And, and you know, Morgan, I really think it starts with creating an environment of learning for, for staff members, you know, and school administrators setting, um, setting an environment where it's okay for a teacher to take a chance, you know, try something. Um, I remember when I was in Appleton, Jerry Patterson was the superintendent there and he gave everybody a card that said, I blew it. I tried something. I didn't work. I made a mistake and it didn't work. And, but the, the freedom to take those risks and set up that environment um, of learning right away. So that, and I may be going off from, I'm getting back to your, your question, but still great. One of the things that we need to be doing, I think in schools um, with our teachers right away is setting a culture where teachers go into other teachers' classrooms and watch them teach. And then teachers have conversations about that teaching and rich conversations. And you know, have I don't know about you, but I've been in teachers' lounges where it says, no talk about kids here. I'm thinking, this is a rich environment to talk about. I tried this. How did it work? What did you do? Um, so I think that culture needs to start with right out of the chute. Young people as teachers need to know that you're good and growing. Here's one thing we need to stop doing. We need to stop putting beginning teachers in the most difficult roles ever. You know, I remember a beginning teacher when I was a middle level principal 
And it was my first year, so I didn't set it up this way. But this young woman was teaching German. She taught at the middle school. In the first period, she taught in a math classroom. Second period, she taught German in a home economics classroom. Uh, Third period, I think she actually had her lunch. Then she went over to the high school and taught two more classes of German at the high school. Why do we do that to beginning teachers? Why do beginning teachers get the hardest jobs? You know, they should be, you know, the best, the teachers with the most experience and the deepest, richest background should be teaching the classes that are most difficult. So why don't we put those people with experience working with kids who need more time, working with kids who are taking basic algebra instead of calculus? Um, so I think those are some of the things that we need to be thinking about. But thinking about, you know, and Charlotte Danielson has what she calls those four domains, and one of them is the classroom environment. And um, I think a school has an environment too. You walk into the school and you can feel it. You know what I'm saying? You, you can feel that era of this is a positive place to be, or does it say, principal parks in this parking lot and you don't get to, well, I mean, it doesn't say that, but it says principal yeah. only parking, which is yeah. one of my pet peeves and biases. Those, well, those, those, um, those norms that are created that are unspoken, right? Those mm-hmm. unspoken cultural norms. And, um, I, you know, it's so funny, uh, when you talk about Danielson as a as an administrator, I'm like, yep, to a building a, a respect a classroom of respect and rapport, yeah. right? Like I can go through right each each uh, domain and what that means. And so I was thinking about relative to your your work about Danielson or the work around the Danielson mm-hmm. model knowing that number one, um, and you being deeper, so correct me if I'm wrong, but number one, it was never intended to be an evaluatory tool. It was intended exactly. to be a growth tool, a professional learning tool, not a tool, not a gotcha tool. Um, but what I like, what I really like and appreciate about Danielson, um, and I'm going to connect it to something else. I was, I was watching a video, a Simon Sinek video the other day. So I'm going to connect Danielson, Simon Sinek and John Hattie. Here we go. Ready? Here, bring, here, here I bring the trifecta together. So Simon Sinek was talking about, um, you know, he, he talks about that, what's your why, knowing your purpose, all that. But he was saying, we can only see the things that we have words for, mm-hmm. right? We can only realize those things. So Danielson's work is is, and I'm going to tie that to Hattie's work on visible learning, right? So when we, I got that right. That's Hattie, Mm -hmm. visible learning. Yeah. Right. So Hattie's work on, on visible learning. And so if we can see it and we can break it down in a way where instead of, you know, as an administrator, for me, when I looked at those Daniel, that Danielson rubric, and we had to, you would never, never, take all of those components and expect in one year, a teacher to be excellent in, in every single one of those 84 areas, right? However many it comes out to. Um, and so really making a part or a visible piece of that 
based on that, that rubric, it's really mm-hmm. important. So I'm wondering um, when you engage in that work around what it looks like to build, you, you mentioned cultures, right? Where students have agency, students are creating, students are owning the learning. What have you seen and how have you used that Danielson uh, model to, to leverage some of that? Well, let me just be real honest. Um, when I really got into the Danielson work is when I left being a public school administrator because I really was doing that work pretty much full time. Um, and I started with her in, in 1996, but 1997, but you're absolutely right. That model was meant to be a growth model. And we are hoping to get back to, and I'm not, at this point, I'm not, I'm connected only with the Danielson group in that I was a charter member and a founding member of that group. Um, I'm not doing training through them anymore. I just, I do training, some training on my own, but uh, uh, anyway, so I'm not, I'm just, I'm a retired member. That's what I am a bit that that group. But Charlotte and I talk once a month. I mean, we have a scheduled Zoom once a month. That said, um, the other thing with Danielson and the work of others is that Charlotte's work asks the question what it is that a teacher needs to know and be able to do. And people like John Hattie, people like John Saphir, people like Marzano, they talk about, and how do you do it? So it's a nice contrast between what is it and how do you do it? And the way I do it might be totally different than the way you would do it. But if it works with kids, that's the most important part. And that really wasn't your question, was it? <laughs> Let me get back to that. No, no, I, we're, we're here for a conversation, right? And we're, we're thinking through all of this research that we know mm-hmm. helps um, guide that, that learning and the growth that we want. You know, Morgan and I talk a lot about how it, the, this idea of what professional learning looks like. And Morgan, feel free to jump in um, and, and share kind of your perspective from where you sit relative to Danielson and Hattie's work and what you think that's looking like. So I can, I'm not an expert about Danielson or Hattie, like the two of you are, but I do think what you spoke to Darlene about professional learning communities for adults is at the nexus of this theory and application and mm-hmm. student growth. Mm-hmm. And your what you articulated earlier about needing to invest in your people and create space for them to feel psychologically safe, to take risks so that we can actually grow ourselves. Um, I feel like that's the hardest work because there are these competing narratives. There are these competing objectives and we've taken a, something that was supposed to be a tool like Danielson and made it an evaluation system so we can make sure we're checking the boxes. And so I'm thinking with your, in my mind, I'm like, you are a wise person. You have a lot of context. Where do you think we've gone wrong and what can we do to get back on the road to community mm. and actual learning? Good question. Um, I'll, maybe in 10 years, you can come back and ask me that again. 
we'll see how it's changed. But let me just give you a little history with that. Um, because when we first started doing the Danielson work, we never said the words evaluation. We never said the words assessment. We weren't looking at videos that assessed a level of performance and and all that. And I'll, well, can I just say all that baloney? We weren't doing that. I mean, that isn't what we were doing. We were talking about having conversations about getting better and so on and so forth. And what happened was the race to the top funds. I mean, they... Uh, Great. I mean, that was wonderful for school districts, but guess what they said? You have, in order for you to be eligible to get funding, you have to show that you have a research-based method of doing teacher evaluations. Well, guess what? At that point, at least, Charlotte Danielson was the only thing out there because she had worked with Educational Testing Service, they had developed these rubrics um, and done a lot of that work um, with the, um, oh, and now my mind is gone. Um, what is that? <laughs> that test that you take before you get into educator in the School of Education now? The MTELs, not the... Like the um, basic skills test or the licensure test? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Praxis. There's like a praxis, the praxis one. That's yes. it. That's yeah. it. Thank you. See, you show your youth. Uh, uh, it, and that's where all that research came from. A lot of it came from praxis. And then the rest of it came from, um, they, they had also had a national teachers certification, national board certification for teachers. So they did research there. They did the research on practice and they put them, they put them together. So that's where, that's why we came, you know, it was like, you know, drinking from a fire hose at that point, because everybody was scrambling to get training and to put into place and, uh, the state of Illinois, state of Wisconsin, many states put into place that this was their system of teacher evaluation. And of course, then when you say evaluation, then, you know, as one of my former teacher friends said, I bet they're glad to see your car pull out of the parking lot. <laughs> and when you talk about teacher evaluation, that was very difficult because it was very judgmental and, and it was being used very top down as opposed to um, this is what I've seen. Let's talk about it. Let's yeah. have a conversation. Yeah. And, you know, um, who said change happens in schools one conversation at a time? I, I can't remember. Do you remember, Stacey? I don't. Said? I don't. But I have, a, I'm sitting with a book on my desk right now that is called Turning to One Another Simple Conversations to Restore Hope to the Future, Margaret Wheatley. And it, it's similar to that mm -hmm. around this idea of having these conversations. And what I'm hearing you say is this um, testing, the impetus of where this testing happened, this over need to quantify and assess and evaluate teachers and students began with this race to the top. And I think it also dismantled the trust that we have in educators in the educational system, even in our students, mm -hmm. even the trust that we have in our students' ability to learn for themselves and to want to grow. 
And so to, to Morgan's point, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we get into a space now where, you know, people like to use the word growth mindset, right? People want to talk about (laughs) that, that idea of growth mindset, fixed mindset, yada, yada, but really how do we get to a place? I mean, we saw, we saw in May of last year, tests, not real, not real, big money, big policy around it. Those making the decisions, not, not it's, it was never about kids. It was about economics and bureaucracy and, you know, Morgan, right. And, and about system, like I'll even go further about systematic racism. If, if, if I, if I can Mm -hmm. be so bold, right. And those in power maintaining the power. Um, right. So how do we, how do we move from where we're currently at knowing what we know and we're seeing happening? Well, I think it goes back to that relationship building with our students and with our teacher and with teachers, you know, and, um, we kept saying we're all in this together. Well, I think as we look forward to future, and I got so tired, I'm sure all of us got tired of hearing, yeah, we're all in this together, but we, you know, we all put our two feet in the, on the floor in the morning in very different environments. Um, and let's remember that. Um, but also let's, but we can keep the all, we're all in this together if we, when we talk about we're in this together to help kids grow and be the best people they could ever possibly be because, you know, um, was it um, Jeff Howard that said, um, if, if from the Efficacy Institute, he said, you know, if a child can learn to talk, but talk by the time they're four or five years old, uh, they ought to be able to do calculus when they graduate from high school. And we have to have those kinds of expectations of all of our kids um, and believe that if we work hard as teachers, we can get our students to work hard and, um, and really do and really succeed. But I do think it starts with the relationship. I mean, you know, as I, I was a high school counselor for many years. Um, kids rarely came down to my office and said, I want to drop a course because it's too hard or because, because I don't like it. It was because I don't like the teacher or the teacher doesn't like me. It had everything to do with that whole idea of establishing a classroom environment for learning, which starts with respect and rapport. That's right. And respect and, and, with and, every kid, regardless of what, what they look like. And creating cultures of belonging and inclusion. And yeah, absolutely. As an administrator, you knew and all the kids knew which teacher you were getting the calls and the emails about. It was never a surprise. It was never a surprise. Mm -hmm. But the system, especially where, you know, in, in a state like mine, that is strong union to remove a teacher to remove an ineffective teacher, the amount of out one, just one ineffective teacher, the amount of hours and time and energy and effort that that would take is almost unbearable. The amount of remediation plans and weekly meetings and arbitration. I mean, like one teacher and I probably had, you know, 10% who just were in the system and 
you know, maintaining it. So, and I feel like people are probably, Oh, go ahead, Darlene. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, go ahead. No, what I'm, what I wanted to put, jump in there with what you said too, Stacey was, you know, and then what happens is you have this much time with one teacher that you're, that it needs remediation and, and I give them this much time and they grow maybe this much, but I work with the teacher that's good and growing. And I give that teacher this much time and they grow this much. I know we don't have a visual here, but I mean, I'm using inverse. You're saying an inverse correlation between the amount of time and growth. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the thing is, I think people will hear that and be like, oh, that's a union bashing statement. So like, let's just call out what the criticism will be for you to say that. And it's actually more about how can we rethink the role of that space to be another community of support to help people be proactively prepared for the work that's going to be asked of them for the future, for the education we know we need to give to kids instead of kind of serving as an anchor in the past. I think, and I mean, it's not just unions, our institutions are testing the things that leaders are tied to anchor us That's right. in this past moment of high stakes testing, industrial school models, learning in the school building there's just they're tethering us to this past vision of learning that is not reflective of our current reality and and i think when we saw during covid a lot of kids disengage because they realize oh i don't have to show up this was never for me anyway no one here cared about me anyway so i'm definitely not getting on the zoom with you and so it makes me think about like how can we reframe and like change the narrative around what learning, not what schooling, but what learning really needs to look like. And total aside, I think the quote you are looking for, Darlene, was from like evocative coaching. Um, Okay. Yeah, (laughs) I I Googled it. But then I I think my question for you then is, you've seen so many, you've supported so many amazing educators. You've been in a lot of different schools. What are people doing? Can you share some examples of either teachers or schools or leaders who you think are doing a really good job in building that relationship, relationship of trust and rapport, that they're building a, a strong culture and community in their schools and classrooms. Like, what are they doing? Well, one of the things they're doing is they're getting into those classrooms on a regular basis. Um, uh, and, um, well, your editor can cut this part out if your editor wants to cut this part out. So I'm just going to say this, but I always laugh and tell when I get very close to a group of people, I will say, you know, the best principal I ever had came into my classroom almost every day. And finally, he was there so often, I just married him. <laughs> and that's the truth. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. We, first of all, we're not editing nothing out. Second of all, I think what I just heard you say is that you were sleeping with the principal. No, I'm kidding. Hey, I, well, I am not. For the last 47 years, I have been. <laughs> oh, that's In awesome. Fact, but anyway, but the, the truth is, I think the biggest thing that a principal can do to, or an administrator can do at whatever level you are, whether you're the building level principal or the superintendent is to be visible in those classrooms. And we have people that say, I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. Well, hello, 
And they're not lying. They're not lying. We have asked them almost what we're asking them to do is impossible, especially I, I will go to bat for my high school principals any day. We want you to run a whole athletic program and be successful in sports. We want you to make sure every student's social and emotional well-being is okay. We want you to make sure that your facilities are up to date. We want to make now you now you're measuring six feet apart for stuff. Like the amount that we are asking of of high high schools in particular, I think in the United States, we just keep we keep piling on and piling on and piling on. Where in other countries. As you know, right? Those activities, those athletic, those are not those are not so deeply embedded into the the academic, right? The academic discourse and system. So, um, I, I really just appreciate, Darlene, your your depth of knowledge, the time you've spent in this profession, and and continue to spend uh, as we close. Is there anything that we didn't ask you? that you think would be really important for our listeners to be um, thinking about? Well, and I hate to say really part of this, but um, I, I have to say we have to start treating our educators as professionals and we have to start paying them as professionals. Um, the idea that a, a young person can spend all that money on a degree in education and then come out and say, when I retire, I'll probably be making $65,000. No, that's not going to work. That's that's what Dr. Key. Yeah. We, in our conversation with Dr. Key, she was saying, why, why would anyone who ends up with a degree and spent that money, why would this be the thing they choose Mm -hmm. to do? That's Mm -hmm. right. Like it's not financially viable. It's not, there's no rapport in it in our, our society and the support isn't there for you. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we saw during COVID, like teachers kind of got hung out to dry when things started going left. If it, people were like, well, the teachers aren't, aren't doing it. Teachers aren't, aren't the ones who want to go back. I was like, no, as a, as a community, we haven't set people up to be successful in this transition back. And now we're acting like, just go back to doing what you were doing is the right solution. So I totally hear you. And I, I think we could sit here for like three more hours and unpack so many of the challenges that exist in education. But I really just feel like what you said today is so powerful because we need to get back to that relationship piece. And if what I'm going to take away from this conversation is really thinking about what it looks like to, for us to be creating a community of learning where we're respecting every single person wherever they are in the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And we're not really making it about a hierarchy because everyone is going to mess up. Everyone is going to have to learn something at some point. And we all need to be able to humble ourselves to learn from someone different. Mm-hmm. And that's not saying people aren't humbling themselves, but it's like we're, people are afraid to make mistakes right now because everything is so high stakes. And so we can't be vulnerable. We cannot, we feel like connecting and asking for help is going to get you on a remediation plan. Exactly. And, and how do we learn yeah. our mistakes? How, how, how do we, how do we, do we really learn? Uh, uh, you know, Charlotte, one of the things that Charlotte Danielson says is teaching is too hard to ever get it perfect. It, it's too hard. It's probably one of the hardest jobs you'll ever love, but if you love it, you know, you're willing to, to hang in there. But um, 
a lot of people just can't make that choice to hang in there because no, they can't. And, and, and people, the work is people work and people aren't perfect. So how could a teacher, a school, a system be perfect anyways, right? right? This is human to human work. And so that's really what, um, where I hope we can refocus to, to your point, right. To relationships. Um, as we close, I, I'd like to, Oh, go ahead, Morgan. I have one last question and it's building up what you just said, Stacey, which is you've been in this for a really long time, Darlene. I'm wondering what is keeping you in this? Like we just talked about all the challenges, but you're still here pushing for people, trying to support people. Why? What keeps you going? Oh, I think it's what I said kind of at the beginning. It's, but I, I have to wake up in the morning and think I have a purpose. You know, I, I just, you know, that there's something I can do today that makes a difference, you know, and so you keep doing what you can do, you know, um, whether it's this kind of thing, whether it's teaching a class, um, you know, whether it's going across the street and working at the elementary school with some teachers, I, I, I feel like um, I still have a lot of energy and um, it's, it's my, it's my raison d'etre, my reason to be. <laughs> oh, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. I hope that um, when I am 79, I am able to say and feel and be as energized and purpose-driven still around education as you are. You are somebody that is certainly a role model. Um, and, and I am certain has impacted so many people. That's one of the things about education is it is deep people work and many times those people move on and we don't hear back from them and we don't know. So let me be the voice to you for the thousands in your career that you have impacted and will continue to impact. And thank you for, for the service and the work that you've done, Darlene, certainly um, incredible and, and, and noteworthy. Oh, thank you. It was fun to talk to you. I love to talk about teaching. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Final question. You had mentioned it. Um, you said, in, ask you in 10 years. So I'm going to ask you now what you think education will look like 10 years from now. And in 10 years, we'll have you back on the show when you're <laughs> 89 to see uh, how close or far away you are. So what do you, what do you think education will look like 10 years from now? You know, um, I hope it would be more real life experiences, more taking kids out into the, into the community. Um, I just read something the other day about um, a flipped classroom. And one of the things that people had learned with the, you know, go the, with the online learning was um, doing asynchronous sessions, like the direct teaching that a lot of high school teachers do, do still do that online and then have the kids do their homework in class when you're there to see, help them. So I would hope that we would begin to make some progress in those areas. Um, uh, I would also hope that we would get rid of the high stakes testing and, um, you know, Talk more about what is what what have you learned, and what can you do at long term, 
as opposed to what can you do in the two hours that you have to take this darn test. Um, I think we've been really sucked in by that. Um, and a lot of companies have made a lot of money with that. Um, but it takes an, an incredible amount of time. Um, I have some four kids that are in the community that I, um, I don't know, like I'm a big sister, I'm a big grandma too, whatever I am, but uh, that kind of that kind of thing. And, you know, they're online and then they have to go into the school for a whole day and take a test, take test, do testing. That doesn't make sense. So I would hope in 10 years, we would get back to more of real life experience. We, we would get to, I don't want to say back to because we were never there, but more real life experiences, more kids being validated by um, their real talents and, and, and how, they, how we know they can succeed. Well, thank you so much, Darlene Axel, for being our guest today on the Out of Edge Experience. This has been an amazing um, conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>